Amen. So we took up the question on, on Tuesday, which is the title of your outline, In Pursuit of the Tassel. In Pursuit of the Tassel. And what I tried to share with you is that there was a very serious event given in Mark's gospel uh, of a woman, a Jewish woman, who had a very serious impediment, a very serious illness that we wanted to take serious. We wanted to honor her, her, her challenge, her struggle, and her burdens. And so in your outline, we walked with her through this challenge and we raised the question under uh, our opening uh, proposition, what was her need? What was that what was that woman's need? Do you guys remember what that was? Healing. What did she need? Healing. She needed healing. And, and that idea of her healing, we said, didn't come out of nowhere because she's a child of God. She's a Jew. She knows Torah, and Torah gives us promises in relationship to our needs. You guys would agree with that, right? We are fundamentally needy people, human beings, and when we fail to know that, we will fail to benefit from the God who can meet our need. We looked under uh, uh, subpoint A in our outline and we saw that the need was healing. This is how Mark addressed it over in verse 22. He said, and behold there, um, I'll start at actually verse 25, and a certain woman which had an issue of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but she grew worse. So when one slows down and really analyzes verse 25 and 26, what we realize is that this woman had a very serious need. And what we said was we don't have the right to neglect uh, digging as deep into, in our own mind, in our own psyche, into scriptural examples of needs <clears throat> carelessly. We want to have every sense of the weight and the challenge and the burden as possible on ourselves because this was a real human being with a real struggle that is not so, um, that is not so radical that we can't find her being an example of many women who had many issues when it came to their physical body, particularly in the area of uh, menstrual uh, periods, which is what's going on with this woman. In fact, it was a situation that was described in the Levitical Code in chapter 15, where God had made it clear that women who are going through their menstrual cycle are, um, are to understand that state as being unclean until that cycle clears up. Um, and so this woman is in a state where her cycle doesn't clear up. Her cycle is perpetual. And according to our text, if we are being um, expository listeners, how long was she in this state of uncleanness? 12 years. It's a long time. So what we said was before moving quickly to any other assertion or any other ideas, we want to sit there and go, a person can have a need. A person can have a very serious need, and that need can be with them for a long time. Amen. 12 years is a long time. a long time. I don't care who you are, what you think, 12 years with an affliction is a long time. Yes. We therefore could uh, also bear record with that affliction being a trial for her 
Because in addition to it being a physical affliction, we can imagine, you can, right, that if she has an issue where she is menstruating constantly, then she has a, a, a very bad blood condition that's going to affect her in terms of her energy, in terms of her optimism. She's going to be low in iron, low in other elements that are necessary for her blood to function well and to flow significantly. You guys know all of the implications there. That would have us to be sympathetic with her because would you agree that if a person, a female, is struggling with this kind of gynecological event, this abnormality, this, this variable in her cycle, that not only is it impacting her physiologically, but it's impacting her psychologically. Yes. Of course, of course, our bodies are, our bodies are inseparably connected to our soul and spirit at the level of our weaknesses and our infirmities. You would agree with that, right? Yes. Uh, anyone who would deny that the physical body with its strengths and weaknesses and aberrations becomes an integral part of our confidence, our hope, our aspirations, or otherwise is playing Gnostic games with reality. And we've warned about that as well. You don't separate your body from your spirit in terms of those two being an integral part of your identity, right? Because we do know that if a man is hungry, he's going to be tempted to steal, is he not? Yes. All right. So you put pressure on a body, and that body is going to act in certain ways, and we'll call that a trial, wouldn't we? Is she in a trial? All right. And in, in addition to her being in the trial in her physical body, she is now in a state where she does not get to enjoy communion and fellowship with the people of God because according to Leviticus 15, she has to stay outside of the camp. Now, the, the Jewish people had a cycle of that going on through different uh, uh, litigations and different uh, uh, what would be considered... Um, precepts of God in terms of what they could do and when they discovered that they were unclean, how that they had to wash and maybe after seven days they could come back into the camp. All of those kind of, uh, all, kind, all kinds of cleanliness laws. Those would have been laws for, for Israel in terms of their hygieno maintenance as they were going through the wilderness. All of that was a challenge for them. But for this woman to not only have a physical ailment that made her weak, but it also caused her to have to be separated from the people of God, that's going to create for her a psychological challenge because she's now looking like a pariah, is she not? All right. And by the way, human beings, saved or not, can be really nasty about other people being in afflictions and them not. You agree with that? So what we would, what we would surmise as we are trying to put our feet in her shoes before we move on to the very noble response that I'm going to talk to you about here is that this female is in this predicament for 12 years, not in fellowship with the saints in total for 12 years. She has to circumvent the privileges of the kingdom of God for 12 years. She has to bear up under the weakness of her body for 12 years. She has to try to sustain her identity in Christ as a Jewish woman. She believed in Messiah. She believed in Messiah to come. But she was doing that without the benefits of help. And a lot of people are in that situation. Certainly she was. In addition to that, according to the text we are told in verse 26... And she suffered many things of the what? Physicians. 
I've shared this with you with regards to the word suffer. I want you to have a very clear understanding. She suffered many things. First, what that means is she tolerated all that she had to go through with the physicians. In addition to tolerating her own physical illness, she had to tolerate the limitations of human beings who hold occupations that would assert that maybe they can do something for you. This becomes a reality for you and me across many different disciplines as well. We have to tolerate people. We have to endure people. And she had to endure these positions. Um, if you've been in, a, in an illness where the doctors are prescribing things to you, where they're telling you you've got to follow these regimens, you have to follow these protocols, and I want to see you again in two weeks, or I want to see you in a month, or I want to see you in 90 days, you have to suffer that, do you not? You have to tolerate that. This is where you get put up under the title patient. Because the word patient means to suffer. That's what that word means. It has as its extraction the idea of passion. And passion means affliction. And, and so a patient is an individual who is in a state of need under a burden going through a regimen that's given to them by other human beings who are ontologically are just in their natural makeup just as weak as they are, but they may have a gift and employing that gift to try to help you, you have to suffer all of the shenanigans and mechanisms and, 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 and ex explorations and, and different suggestions that the doctor may give you, right? And, that can be exacerbating in its own right. Just kind of painting the context before we move on. So the sister is to be pitied. She's to be pitied because not only does she have an affliction that leaves her unclean spiritually in terms of her ceremonial, ceremonial position with the people of God, which means I can actually imagine her um, quite frequently not telling anybody what she's going through. Because this is, for her, a quasi-hidden affliction, isn't it? She could cover it up. She could hide most of it, as uncomfortable as she may be. We may not necessarily assert that there weren't ways by which she could hold her bleeding in and do certain things. She could. But she knew in her own mind she was constantly draining. And that's going to be a trial. Some trials are drip, drip trials, are they not? Trials that drip, trials that constantly nag at you. Whenever you and I are going through an affliction, you and I know that we are still in that affliction until we reach a state of normalcy. Is that right? Even if we're healing until we get to a state of normalcy, we know that we are in some kind of way weak. I hurt my Achilles a month ago, actually two months ago, um, really bad, and I thought it would recover in a couple of weeks. It has not. And I injured it two or three times since then. And so even now, I'm in a weak state with my Achilles, and I know it every time I walk more than four or five feet. I'm going, still not ready. Still not ready. It's an affliction, is it not? It's an affliction. And, uh, and, and if I had to live with this for 12 years with this lady, it's going to change my orientation. It's going to remodel the way I engage, because I'm very energetic, and I move a lot. And I would have to now modify all that in a constant state of awareness that I'm in an affliction. I state that because what we're about to deal with here in a moment is fundamentally remarkable to me, and I don't want us to not capture it. So when we are raising the question about her having a need, 
I say that it turned into a burden because it was 12 years and she had to suffer many things of many physicians and she spent all her money and she was not only not getting better, she was getting worse. That's a bad situation, right? right. So we talked about that being a burden. And so I am calling attention to a question, the propositional promise. What is the propositional promise and we already have the answer here. I'm going to prove that to you by our statement. It comes under her need and, uh, and even under her burden. What is the propositional promise to a person that is afflicted, a person that's ill or sick or in need of healing? What is the propositional promise? That God can heal you. That's the propositional promise. And I want you to attach that idea of the promise to the concept of proposition because proposition is where I want to actually pour into the idea of the tassel why God gave Israel a regiment of dealing with the fringes, dealing with the tassel, making sure you engage the tassel is because in engaging the tassel you have now a mechanism, a modality, a means by which you continue to engage God at the propositional mold of his promises to you through his word. Did that make some sense? Right, it's important to capture again. We are not just talking about bodily exercises. We're talking about God saying using your physicality to engage with him and connect with him at a level of mechanism or repetition or exercises by which the propositions of God remain lodged in your mind at an effective level. So remember the tassels. That's what we talked about. Remember the tassels. Handle the tassels. Remember that because they're your mnemonic. They inherent in the tassels were the word of God, the word of promise, propositionally. Okay, and I, I'm definitely driving that home as an argument for you and me. Remember the tassels. Put them on your road. Attach them as co-extensive uh, reminders of exactly why God has clothed you in the first place. Because remember, the covering is from God, is it not? You and I are not naturally covered by the grace of God as a sort of intrinsic right as a human being. I'm covered from my head to my toe in the tunic of God's grace because of what Christ has done for me. But I'm reminded of it as I play with the what? As I play with the tassels. The tassels keep me constantly aware that I'm in a relationship with God, albeit because I'm between grace and glory, I'm in a state of what? Between grace and glory, I'm in a state of what? Sanctification. That sanctification means that I'm in a process of being simultaneously righteous and what? Therefore weak and therefore flawed and therefore capable of enduring all kinds of sufferings, therefore inclined to impediments and weaknesses, therefore disposed to trials. Is that true? Yeah. So even though I'm justified, I'm not yet what? Glorified. So I am in a state of sanctification, which means I'm in process. So being in process means that you and I are predisposed to trials. Predisposed to trials. I just wanted to press that home because I want you to have the rich theology behind what she's going through. Because what I tried to persuade you on Tuesday was that this woman was solid in her knowledge of the word of God. And you're getting ready to find out now why. 
But she did put up with the doctors, which tells you and I that we are not to be so high and holy in ourselves that we don't resort to um, practical means of helping us in areas in which people become experts in aspects of our life. This would be true in terms of physicians. This would be true in terms of, of legal resources. It would, this would be true across a whole, um, a whole litany of um, social needs that we would see help if we had need of it, right? Only, only, um, only naive Pentecostal Christians who think all they have to do is pray and God will solve all of their problems fall prey to the kind of, I don't go to doctors for any reason, any time. Those would be naive Christians, would they not? Not only would they be naive Christians, they would be Christians who don't handle the tassel well. What is the tassel? The propositional truth claims of God's word. Because the tassel would not tell you not to seek a physician. It would tell you to try to seek a good one, but it wouldn't tell you not to seek a physician. Physicians are a pre-assumed position in the word of God. They are pre-assumed. Um, and so even one of the um, authors of what we would call the synoptic gospel gives us great insight into this account. He's called Luke. Luke is a and he uses many medical terms in the Greek language to let us know how God has integrated medicine into the metaphor. And I've already told you, sozo or soteriology is the Greek term for healing. Salvation is a medical paradigm. And so Exodus chapter 16, verse 26 would say, I am, uh, chapter 15, verse 26 would say, I am the Lord that what? Healeth thee. See, I'm playing with the tassel now, am I not? I'm going back to the Old Testament and I'm actually rendering a promise, a propositional promise to that sister who is in need of healing, am I not? So, and it's apparent to us, right, that she was holding on to the tassel. She read Exodus 15, 26. She, this is 15, 26, uh, sweetheart, 15, 26. And he said, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord, uh, your God, and will do that which is right in his sight. And he will give his commandments to you, and, and if you will keep his statutes, he says, I will put none of these diseases upon you, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that what? That is what we call a propositional promise, is that not? Right. A propositional promise is a promise coming from where? The word of God. Bible truth is proposition. The proposition that God tells us we are to be reminded of is now in an imperative where we get a hold of the what? The tassel. And the tassel reminds us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in the person of Christ. So I am pursuing Christ as my healer, am I not? And so now this woman that is in this affliction is going to kind of show us this. So look with me at verse 27, if you don't mind. Uh, I want to try to move forward. And when, and, and when she had heard, that's verse 27 of Mark chapter 5. When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and did what? She came in the press behind and touched his garment. Now remember what I told you the garment was? What was the garment? It was the tassel. It was the tassel. 
Literally, in the Greek language, that word means tassel, okay? Uh, a beautiful concept. It's, um, in the Greek, it's the word kraspodon. And let me see if I'll just give you a few verses to underscore that. Some of your translations will have tassel or have fringe. It's also translated hinges um, or border, okay? Touch the border, touch the hinge, touch the tassel, touch the fringes. That's the way it may be translated in some of your uh, in your, in your, in your uh, different translations of the scripture. But again, we can find this tassel uh, example in, uh, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 36. I want you to see this because I want to show you something here as well. This is Matthew's gospel chapter 36. And notice what occurs. It tells us, let me start back at verse uh, 14. I'm sorry, verse 34. Matthew 14, 34, get a context for it. And when they were going over, that is the other side, they came into the land of Gennesaret. This is by uh, Galilee. This is Jesus and the disciples. And when the men of that place had knowledge of Jesus, they sent out into all that country roundabout and brought unto him all that were what? All that were diseased. That means Jesus is about to engage in what? A healing service. Is he not? Was it that a messianic signet? Didn't he come to heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, to heal the brokenhearted and to mend the wounds of souls? Of course. So I want you to see how his reputation had preceded him. And when he comes, people are coming with their what? Needs. They're coming with their what? Needs. This woman has a what? A need. Right. And notice what the verse says. And you may not notice this, but it's going to be clear to you now because you're never going to forget the tassel lesson. The tassel lesson is going to stay with you forever. Look at verse 36. And he and besought him. They begged him that he might that they might only do what? Touch the hem of his garment. There it is. So your word hem there is the word for tassel. It's the word for friend. So notice, not only does this isolated event of the woman wants to get at the hem, hem, get at the tassel. All these people want to get at the tassel. All these people want to get at the tassel. Am I making some sense? They don't want to just get at the hem of his garment. They want to get at what's at the bottom of the garment. It's the tassel. They just want to do what? Touch it. Right. Touch it. Now, again, this is not the only time this is rendered. Mark renders it and and Luke renders it as well. It is apparently a kind of common thing uh, around the pursuing the the border of his hymn. Look at Mark's gospel, chapter six, verse 65. I want to drill this down before we go on. Mark 6, 65. I want you to see it again. So, so far, we've got two accounts, one with a singular woman who understands the promises inherent in the tassel, right? Then we got a whole group of people who are in need who also, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, they have a targeted goal, don't they? And it's predicated upon the discipline of hearing God's word that tells them, I am the Lord that what? Which tells you and I that Jesus is Messiah and he's God come in the flesh because only God can heal you. Now watch how it's used in Matthew 65. And whithersoever he entered, and whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or countries, they did what? I mean, they just laid every ill afflicted person you can find in the street because Jesus was available. But more than available, he was willing. More than willing, he was capable. 
So see, God is available. God is willing and God is capable of healing you, right? God doesn't lie, change, or fail. So what are they doing? They are also responding to the tassel, are they not? Here it is, watch it. And they besought him that they might touch, if it were, but the what? That's the tassel, the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made what? Just like that woman with the issue of blood. You guys keeping up with me now? Because we're going to drill down into this deeper. I just want you to look at how the New Testament affirmed that Old Testament promise. The Old Testament promise was continue to look upon the tassel because in the tassel is Torah. It's the commandment of God. It's the precept and propositions of God's promises, right? Inherent in the Torah are the promises of God. And the man or woman that operates at the level of Torah are what we call promises propositional promises based on the word of God will have the produce of what in their life? Is that true? Is that what was going on with this woman? So this is what I want you to look at. You got it, Big D. Hebrews chapter eleven six. 6. Faith is the substance of things what? The evidence of things what? Does it look like that in that woman's life? Right. Go back to uh, Mark's gospel, chapter five, and let's look briefly at verse 27 and 28. I want you to capture it so we can move on to the deeper lessons by way of application. When she had heard of Jesus coming in the press and when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind. So what I shared with you last time, just in terms of uh, proximity, it was a lot of people pursuing Jesus and she was behind them. She was not in front of them. Mark wants us to know that she labored to get to Jesus. This speaks to the quality of her faith. It speaks to the character of her hope. Because what I told you on Tuesday was this woman had every obstacle against her at the level of Old Testament mandates to hinder her from pursuing Jesus. If she had stayed tied into Torah at the Old Testament level, at the Levitical code level, that again is Leviticus 15. If she had been trapped merely by Moses and didn't see that Moses pointed her to Messiah, she would have been demotivated to press through the crowd. But because she understood the purpose and design of Torah, which is to lead you to Jesus, she breaks through the crowd which means she's touching everybody as she goes. And she's saying to the Lord, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, but I've got to have this man. Is that right? Is that true? This is what I love about the word of the living God, and this is what the Jews at that time hated about Jesus. They hated the fact that what Jesus was teaching them is that Torah makes it inexplicably, unarguably, incontrovertibly true that even when you try to pursue righteousness, you're going to sin while you're doing it. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in the sight of God. Did that come home? Right. And so this is what Jesus says. He said, Moses gave you the law, but none of you keep it. In other words, the commandments were set up to transcend your capacity for perfect obedience. I can give you many examples, but I want to get into Q&A time tonight. Jesus gave two. I loved it. One of them is the Sabbath day. He says, now Moses told you to keep the Sabbath, but on the Sabbath day, you have children who are eight days old when they're born. Now you got two laws. One of you got to break. 
You got to break one of these laws. Do you know why? Because you're a sinner. Right? Right. And, and this is where I actually do believe in what is called situational ethics. I understand how law works, but I believe in situational ethics. I believe that there are hierarchical principles that set aside or mitigate temporarily subordinate principles for the greater cause. Does that make some sense? That's logical. Right. Every principle doesn't carry the same weight of truth and verity or else they would cancel each other out. Some have to subordinate themselves under others. They have to wait for their own time. At other times, they will have priority over the text or the command or the imperative or the precept I'm working with now. This is simply rightly dividing God's word. That makes sense, right? And Jesus is telling you the the solution to Torah is not your obedience, but mine. The solution to your to, to Torah for you is not your obedience, but mine, right? And for you to actually be able to embrace that proposition, you've got to have the obedience of faith. So the woman is believing that Jesus has a solution to her sickness, does she? And she presses through. Now listen to what it says in verse 28, because she is very clear. For she said in herself, this is the way the other translations do it. If I may but touch the hem, do you see it? Do you see what we are, I'm stating here, the produce of hope in terms of the proposition promise. I am the Lord that heals you. Jesus is coming to her. She's not coming to Jesus. I told you that. He's passing by her way. The opportunity is rendered. Her need is great. She has handled the tassels, and in her is the hope of glory. She sees him pass by, and faith pursues him, does it not? And has to overcome all kinds of obstacles. It has to overcome fear. It has to overcome doubt. It has to overcome rejection. It has to overcome failure. She doesn't know if she's going to get there, but what she's not going to do is stop short of trying as much as she can because she believes the promises of God, right? She figures it'll work out if she can but touch his clothes. She says what? I will be whole. That's powerful. All right, so let's turn this into a Kodak snap. Because really what this means is if you and I understand the trajectory from her sickness to her salvation, because that's what that word whole means. It means to be saved. From her sickness to her salvation is a journey, is it not? And it's a journey of what? Faith, right? And when that faith lays a hold to the object of faith, which is Christ, she now has her salvation, does she not? And Jesus is the one that said it. Notice what he says over in um, verse 30. Uh, I'm sorry, let's look at verse 29 and walk it through. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, who touched my what? And you guys remember, I took you to the other two accounts wherein one of them said, who touched me? Remember that? This is Matthew's account. So in other words, for the woman to touch the hem, for her to touch the tassel, for her to touch his clothes is to touch him. In other words, for us, the word of the living God is in its propositional form pointing us to the summation of that word in the person of Jesus, right? He is the word made flesh dwelling among us. If I have his word rightly divided, I have him, do I not? Right. Beautiful thing, isn't it? 
beautiful thing. Who touched my clothes? And then remember, we learned that she was uh, compelled by this question, which wasn't a question that Jesus needed answering because he knew. It was simply an opportunity now for his father to be glorified in the son through someone who trusted him over the uh, forbiddings of Torah. She gets to become an example of how grace overcomes the works of the law. You see that, right? Where grace, where sin abound, grace doth much more abound. Right. And this is a beautiful celebratory moment because listen to what Jesus says. Now I want you to capture it. It says, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Do you know what verse 38, verse 33 is called, you guys? Worship. That's called worship. When we worship the true and the living God, it's predicated on a call. It's called the call to what? Worship. And the object of our worship is who? Christ. And what does worship call us to do? Confess him as Lord. Declare his sufficiency. Acknowledge our need. Proclaim our weakness and sinfulness. Submit to his crown rights. Obey his voice, right? And in doing that, we bring praise to God and praise to Christ. And notice how he affirms her. This is all in your outline from from uh, from Tuesday, verse 34, because I want to move on to a very germane question with you guys. And he said unto her, daughter, your faith has made you what? Giving you complete salvation. Complete salvation. Please capture this. You and I are whole in the gospel sense when we are made righteous in Christ. Righteousness is perfect wholeness. Do you not know that? Right. When you are made whole, you are holy. I mean, H-O-L-Y, holy. Because as God is holy, so are we holy. When you're made whole, you're made righteous. I mean, you stand in the very righteousness of Christ as if you had never, ever sinned at all. When you are made whole, you are perfect in God's sight in terms of the standards of God's law. You have never committed any sin at any time. The sin slate is clean. More than that. The sin demands are filled up. Every imperative that the law calls you to obey, Christ obeyed. So that you stand before God as having fulfilled the law. Is that true? Is that true? If it's true that you and I have fulfilled the law in the person of Christ, then guess what God is saying? We love him. Because love is fulfilling the law, is it not? So when the Christian believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusts him as as his savior, as their savior, you and I are being made whole by the wholeness that's in Jesus. Am I making some sense? I am saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. I am justified. I am in a state of sanctification, but sanctification is already manifesting glory in me, is it not? And he who has begun a good work in me shall what? Perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is inexorably true that he whom God has justified, he has also glorified. So in time, we get to exhibit this great grace that's in Jesus when we have needs. And we recognize those needs are called to compel us to seek Christ. God's going to be glorified when you in your need seek him him the way she did. Is Christ glorified today? Is the father glorified? Is his daughter honored for walking by faith? 
That's right. This is so beautiful. All right. So I want to mess with you a little bit before we go into our Q&A, if you don't mind. So <clears throat> what I did under this second question, I said the proposition or the promises of God is designed to pr- produce hope. Hope is the other side of what? Faith. That's Hebrews 11, 6. You've got to always remember that. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We also saw in that production of faith that takes place, it moved her to practically pursuing him. Is that true? This is what we call the obedience of faith. It's called seeking the Lord. Was she seeking him? Is that what your Bible says to do? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, right? So we learned this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13 on Tuesday. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I can give you so many other Bible verses, right? So faith will show up in our seeking him. And God promises that if we seek him, we'll find him. So she had the produce of hope that drove her to the practice of pursuing him in order that the propositional promises of God would come to pass. Is that true? So then what was the prophet pronounced by her practical pursuit that was a consequence of hope produced that was rooted in the propositions of the promise? She's whole. Did you get that? Yeah, these are just simply called exegetically outlined points that emerge up out of the fundamental principles. It's very clear. The word of God produces in us hope and faith. That hope and faith drives us to pursue Christ. And then Christ renders the blessed promise of seeking him by faith, which is healing and wholeness in part and in whole across all kinds of trials in our life. Would you agree? Right. You and I are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, this is pursuing him by pursuing the what, saints? The tassel. By pursuing the what? All right. So I want you to think about this because here's the question that we're going to drill into now. Is the tassel worth pursuing? What do we say on Tuesday? Is it worth pursuing? Is the word of God worth pursuing? Because it's a reminder of God's faithfulness to us. It's worth pursuing, right? Then who will pursue the tassel? The faithful. Is that right? My sheep hear my voice and they what? That's right. Another they will not follow. So we are pursuing him like all the saints pursued him, right? They pursued him. Abel pursued him, right? Noah pursued him. The, uh, the, the uh, Enoch pursued him. Methuselah pursued him. Abraham pursued him. Moses pursued him. We pursue him when he calls us because we are his sheep. All right. I'm getting ready to raise another question. Drill down now. Are you ready? Who else pursues the tassel, the enemy? So I want to teach you another truth here in port. This would only make sense. You know your Bible well. You know if the tassel is a symbol of the word of God, the word of promise, right? If, if the tassel is a symbol of the word of promise, and we know that that word of promise is summed up in the person of Christ, is there not an enemy who wants to actually get a hold of the tassel before we do? To take the tassel away from us? Help me now. Isn't it the job of the adversary of God and therefore the adversary of God's people to intercept us when we're going to reach out for the tassel to stop us from obtaining the promises inherited in that tassel? 
Is that therefore what the serpent was doing in the garden when God had given the promise to Adam and Eve? All of the trees of the garden you may be freely eat, but just leave this tree alone. Didn't he pursue to intercept Adam and Eve before they ate of the tree of life that was in the middle of the garden? Did he stop them from that tassel? Did he stop them? Of course he did. Why? He didn't want them to eat of the tree of life and be permanently in a state of sinlessness. So he distracted them from that tree. Did he not? Did he not? Remember the word of God is represented and symbolized for us right now by the what? The tassel. Keep hold these intention. See, I told you, God gives us little things because it's the small things that God uses to confound the mighty. All the trees of the garden you may eat. That's Genesis chapter 2, 7 and going on. But the tree that's in the midst of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil, lead out alone. What God did not say to Adam and Eve was, you can't have eternal life. You could. If they were smart enough, wouldn't that have been the first tree you hunt down? Then you can play around with all the other food. But you know what the enemy loves to do? Intercept us before we engage with the tassels of promise to stop us from realizing what God has for us. All right, so I'm going to give you an example out of an Old Testament passage that is going to immediately come home with you, and then we'll be able to get into Q&A, because I want us to talk about the implications of this proposition. I say that if God gives you and I a promise that's rooted in a proposition of the truth of God's word, that in in pursuing that promise, you and I got to fight our adversary, the devil, to make sure that he doesn't keep us from being, being distracted from that promise. Is that really true? Is that really true? Do you know anybody in the word of God for whom God gave the promise that the enemy did not try to intercept their journey to that promise? Everyone has to then be tried by that. It makes sense, right? All right, so I'm getting ready to tell you about a brother who is extremely controversial, but I love. He's a sinner, but I love him. And most people don't get him because he is a strange brother in many ways, but that's just how God works. I'm in the book of Judges, chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 18, and I'm going to read an account that is going to actually deal with the tassel again. And we're going to observe some questions. Now, in this account, this is about a man named Samson. Now, Samson is the servant of the living God. Would you agree? Samson born again. Would you agree? Saved as you and me. Would you agree? Um, And Samson was a controversial brother. Would you agree with that? Um, Samson's biggest fault was that he loved women. Would you agree with that? Right. I, I have argued and defended him in the uh, court of public opinion for many decades now. He was not some loose individual that tried to get in the pants or the skirt or the dress uh, of any woman. He never did. If you examine his history carefully, he only really had two women that he was dealing with. Didn't I tell you that? Only two women. I, and I consider that a saint in the 21st century. Would you? Would you? You know, you meet a brother, he's 25, 30 years old, and you say, how many women have you had in your life? Two. You a saint. (laughs) Leave Samson alone. See, what I hate is false advertisement. You talk about disinformation and misinformation. I despise it because the enemy loves to use it against God's people. 
And that's because he doesn't want God's people to benefit from all that Samson is for us. So he loves to poison the well to keep us from drinking from the same well that Samson drank from. For the record, God loved Samson. And God used Samson mightily. Am I making some sense? So you can tell I'm his PR man. And I'm doing this on purpose because I'm getting ready to show you how the enemy figured out Samson's tassels. Are you keeping up with me? His whole journey when he became an adult was to do three things. Exhibit the fullness of Jesus in his consecration. Samson was a Nazarite. And he pointed to the perfections of the one who would be separated unto God, who himself was a Nazarene, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. Does that make some sense? Samson was a Nazarite. That means he was set apart unto God in a unique and specific way where his being set apart would be emblemized by three things. I want you to capture this. It would be emblemized first by his tassels or his hair. Get a hold of it, getting ready to teach you. So his hair was never to be touched. You guys know that. Because the hair for Samson as a Nazarite vow was to not be cut, particularly while he was in his vow. If we were to deal with the technicalities of the Nazarite vow, it was only uh, operable when you were in your season of doing the vow. When you were not in your season, you could be normal like everybody else. But when you were in your season of doing the vow, your hair had to grow because your hair had to distinguish you from everyone else. It was a symbol of separation unto God. Are you guys keeping up with me? It was also a symbol of submission. It's the symbol of submission. Separation, submission. I'm giving you alliterations. Samson, separation, submission. I got more to go. Y'all there? Samson was separated in his Nazarite vow. It symbolized his submission because he pointed to the Savior who himself was submissive to his God. Was he not? Y'all keeping up with me? All right. So in his submission, which I am talking about his what? In his submission, he has to now constantly remember and be reminded of who he was before God predicated upon his hair, right? So his hair was the same kind of mnemonic as the fringes were on the garment. Did y'all keep up with me? All right, and I put a, I put a caveat or a parenthetical between the uh, imperative in Numbers chapter uh, 15 where it says make the fringes, make the tassels on the borders of your garment. And I told you that that same Hebrew term, tzitzi, is used of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 8, where God told Ezekiel, who was also a priest, to let his hair grow, and Ezekiel had locks. Remember that? Do you guys remember that? That's Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 3. She should be catching up with me on that so you guys can visualize it. So what I want you to see is <clears throat> the tassel is a, an external mechanism that is kind of a uh, mnemonic, an exercise of reminding you of God's promises. But there would be other modes of reminding us of God's promises. I did tell you on Sunday that many Jewish men, particularly Orthodox Jews, let their hair grow in order for them to have locks. You can go on your phone and look it up right now. And that was because they took on this modality of the tassel 
even to their hair because they understood that is that was Ezekiel's particular and unique calling because Ezekiel was both a prophet and a what? Priest. So Ezekiel was set apart by God and his hair was an indicator and a reminder to him as well that he was separated unto God. Does that make some sense? And I told you that in Ezekiel chapter 8, there were times when the Holy Ghost got a hold of Ezekiel and Ezekiel had revelations, did he not? And on this occasion, and this wasn't the only occasion, but on this occasion, the Spirit of God in the person of Christ reached out with a hand and grabbed him by a what of his hair? A lock of his hair and lifted him up and took him from Babylon to Jerusalem, right? Trans telepathy. Y'all got that? What I was teaching you was that God grasped him at the promises inherent in his own hair. Because again, he's a Jew. He has to remember Torah, all 1613 commandments, imperatives. And God is meeting him at the level of the promises of his word, right? This is really true. The priest's lips should keep knowledge. And the people should seek the law at his mouth. If that's the case, the priest should have a mechanism by which he remembers the word of the living God. He studies precepts. He delights in God's law. He meditates day and night on his statutes. God's commandments become for him his comfort and his counsel in his night season. Would you agree with that? Are we not all then priests in the kingdom of God? Do we not have the same privilege? Aren't we therefore called to use the same kind of mnemonics and exercises to remind ourselves of the promises of God in our life? Absolutely. So here it is. And he put forth the form of a hand and took me, took me by a lock. That's our same Hebrew word for tassel in Numbers 15. Just trust me for it. You can look it up. Tzitzit is the Hebrew term. It's only used four times, three times in our text back in Numbers 15 and one time here. And I see what the translators are doing with this word because I want you to capture what the tassel is before we go on to deal with Samson for a few minutes and shut it down. The tassel hanging represents a co-extension of the promises of God. The tassel hanging is a co-extension of the promises of God. It creates an extra capacity by which you can get a hold to the promises of God that you have in your own. For the priest, for Ezekiel, his hair was a reminder of who he was in Christ. For Samson, his hair was a reminder of who he was in Christ. Every time he saw his hair, he's remembering the precept, right? I have set you aside, Samson, to be a servant for me. So every time he sees his hair, he's reminded. His hair then is consecrated, is it not? Every time we read the word of God, are we not reminded? Every time we study scripture, hear the word of God preached, proclaimed, declared, are we not handling the tassel? Are we not dealing with the locks of the hair? Sure we are. Sure we are. Took me by a lock of my head and he lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate looking toward the north where the seat of the image of jealousy which provoked to jealousy. That's a whole chapter 8 through chapter 11 is an amazing revelation that Ezekiel had all because Ezekiel was a faithful prophet and priest. So the locks now became a medium between him and God by which God now takes him up into revelation and gives him a deeper, more acute insight as to what the people of God are going through. Does that make sense? So you and I, when we study God's word, it should take us deeper and deeper and deeper. Like you're learning a lot more about the tassel tonight, are you not? 
You will never forget the tassel. Let's go back to Judges chapter 16 and walk with Samson now because Samson's about to make a mistake. And I want us to walk it through because here's the proposition. The proposition is whatever God is calling you to seek with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the enemy wants to avert. He wants to cut you off so that you never obtain that promise. Be sure of that. Go back to verse 17. Um, No, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, you can do that. Um, Verse 16, let me see. Here it is. Because what he's going to do now Notice what it says. And it came to pass when she had pressed him daily with her words and urged him. We get the picture now. She becomes the embodiment of a whole bunch of people pressing on him like the press that came upon Jesus. Right. In this press, she's seeking to overwhelm him and overcome him in terms of his stance and his identity before God. Would you agree with that? She wants to overwhelm him and overcome him. She wants to take him out of his standing. She wants to find not only the idea of his submission being represented in his hair, because that's what I told you it represents, but his submission also represented his strength. Did y'all get that? His, His submission to God is where his strength was, and it was represented in the locks of his hair. So he hadn't yet told her that. He's talked about do this, do that, do the other thing. You know, he was a, you know, he was a jokester. Uh, he knew how to play sisters too. So he, he played her. But this time she played him back, didn't she? She pressed on him. She pressed on him. And she caused him to swerve off the path. And this is going to be a challenge for us, but I want us to walk, walk it through. Notice what it says. It came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was what? Vexed unto what? Okay, good. So that means he was extre- exceedingly grieved. He was exceedingly grieved. Now, why is he grieved? Here's the reason why. He loves her. Did that make some sense? He's in trouble because he's in love. I know somebody else who loved a woman too. And his love for her brought him to grief. His name is Christ. And every sinner chosen in Christ is a Delilah. Are you Delilah? Of course you are. You are a burden to Jesus. I was a burden to him, right? All of us who are his people are a burden to him. And we are a burden because he loves us. See, if all she was was a five-minute, you know, fling, Samson would have rolled up out of there like he did that Harley back a couple chapters ago. Remember what he's hanging out with her that night? And then all the Philistines came. He rose up in the middle of the night, took the bars of the gates and everything, ran on off because he did not love her. Did y'all get that? But when you are in love, love will bind you. And love will strap you down. And love will bring you into the jealousy of death. Now notice what's going on here with Samson. It came to pass when she pressed him daily that his soul was vexed unto death. Verse 17. That he told her what? All his heart. 
and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. All his life, you can imagine the prodigity of his hair, how long that hair had to be. Did y'all get that? So his hair was the most visible, prominent anomaly in his life as a, as a physical man. Right, very important for you to capture that. Now, for those of you who, who kind of read your Bible like uh, Jet Magazine or, 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 or you know, uh, Reader's Digest, and a lot of y'all do, Samson wasn't six feet seven, you know, built like, you know, some massive athletic or weightlifting individual, just perished the thought. He's a little bitty brother, like me. Just a little bitty brother. Nothing about his physicality that was at all prodigious. Did y'all hear what I just stated? There was nothing about his physical capacities that made him superior to other men. Otherwise, it would have actually contravened the nature of the gospel. Because the gospel is actually met in the paradox of weakness. Am I making some sense? And those things that are despised and those things that are small and those things that are of naught. Like my master, the Bible tells me, there was no beauty in him that he should be desired. He was no different than any other man. If Jesus were to walk up in here today, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even notice him. He's just another cat. Am I making some sense? Because God takes no pleasure in the flesh. It's not the power of the flesh, the prestige of the flesh, the prominence of the flesh. It is a wonder that Jesus assumed our flesh. But in that he did it, he didn't take on any kind of extra prodigious qualities in his ontological nature as a human being. He was just a brother like everybody else. His strength came in his submission to God too. Am I making sense? This is why none of the Philistines who were his arch enemy, who were God's arch enemies, could ever find out what his strength was. His strength was right before their face and they couldn't see it. I know they thought he was this weird freak, hair, hair all over the place, right? This, this, this dude's a freak, man, whatever. This dude a freak, see? But that is the nature of the gospel. God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Does he not? Right. That brother was metropolitan, just like John the Baptist. Let me hang out with them brothers. You're going to have some really weird tweets about those two. But God loved them. God loved them. And those are soldiers. I, I, give me John the Baptist, give me David, and give me Samson, and we can handle the business going on around here. I'll take a few other brothers too. Notice what it says. For I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go for me. Ah, oh, he opens up his heart. Do you see it? Now that's what love does. That's what God did for us in Christ. God is a mystery that can only be made known in his love when he reveals himself to us. Is that true? And Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God. He is the bosom of the Father, is he not? He is the one that reveals God to us. And God will only be revealed to you in the context of a loving relationship. That makes sense, right? So why do we know God? Because he loves us. Right? And what does he call of us? To love him back. Is that true? That means he's telling us to open up all of our heart to him too. 
That's a reciprocating love. Agape is a reciprocating love, is it not? Remember what we just learned of the lady in Mark chapter 5? She told him everything. Is that what it said? So here's Samson telling Delilah everything. Here's the woman telling Jesus everything. There is your corollary in paradox, is it not? Remember what um, the queen of Sheba did when she came to Solomon? When she saw all of his glory, she told him all her heart, did she not? And Solomon laid out parable after parable after parable, wisdom after wisdom to help her satisfy her soul in the enigmas and mysteries of life. And she went away so happy. That's the walk that we have with God. He reveals himself to us by and by in the fullness of Christ as we walk with him in the humility of openness to him. It has to be reciprocating love. Is that true? Right. So notice what it says, and I will become weak and become like as other men. Now, verse 18 says this, and when Delilah, that's the Hebrew expression, Delilah, saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistine, saying, come up this once, for he has showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistine came up unto her and brought money in her hands, a foreshadow of Judas Iscariot. You see it, don't you? sold for 30 pieces of silver. And this is why when Judas came back in the Garden of Gethsemane with the soldiers, Jesus said, friend, which is really in, in the Hebrew, uh, in the Greek, the expression of, uh, of phileo. Jesus loved Judas Iscariot in the phileo sense. Why have you betrayed me? You guys see that? Right, Jesus had given Judas all the opportunities in the world to be part of the apostolic band. His name would have been on one of the 12 pillars of the walls of the New Jerusalem. But he lost his bishopric because he didn't love Jesus back. Does that make some sense? Absolutely. This is why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 8, for those of you who don't understand that God's love is conditional, in Proverbs chapter 8 around verse 34, God says, I love them that what? Love me. And they that seek me early will find me. It's reciprocating. There's nobody going to heaven that doesn't love God. And God is worthy of loving. Would you agree with that? And if you're loving God, it's only that you're loving him back. Because John has told us, did John tell us? Right? It's not that we loved him, but that he loved us first. And because he loves us, that love resides in our heart. And it must resonate back to the God that gave that love. And see what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 was, woe unto them that do not love the Lord Jesus in sincerity. Right, so love is critical here, is it not? Love is critical here. And by the way, this tragedy that we're about to look at is our tragedy. Because the love of God given to us is not reciprocated in kind in our sinful condition. We would have done exactly the same thing that this woman did. We'd have sold him out over and over again. You and I are much more like Judas than we are like Jesus. Does that make some sense? Yeah, we're much more like Judas. Every day we lie, cheat, distort, prevaricate. If you don't know what that means, look it up. You have a prevaricating characteristic about you, sir. You modify, you stretch, you alter, right? You mitigate. 
Very seldom do we tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, because it takes grace to do that. Generally in this fallen world where truth is really stated in the purity and perfection of all that it is without any kind of self-oriented uh, inflection, whenever the truth is told in its naked, unmitigated reality, there's a price to pay. Whenever you and I are telling truth in the environment of this sinful world that's controlled by the enemy, you're telling truth, there's a price to pay for truth. This is why we're always shaving the truth off, because you got to pay. I'm sorry, it's the truth. This world is no friend of grace, and it doesn't love the naked truth. All men are, that includes you and me. I'm so glad there's a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. Aren't you? Take a bath every day. Get up in Jesus' name. Keep it moving. Now here it is. <clears throat> then the Lord said the Philistine came there, brought money in their hand. Verse 19. And she made him sleep upon her knees. Pastor, what does that mean? Ask that question. Pastor, what does that mean? What that means is, is when you and I allow ourselves to be detoured by the enemy, our eyes close spiritually to the reality of who we are in Christ and to the dangers that we are in. The eyes closing here is a metaphor for spiritual blindness that will come upon Samson because of a trading of allegiance from God to Delilah. Did that make some sense? Of course it does. Of course it does. The blinding of the eyes throughout the scripture, the closing of the eyes and sleep. This is why David said in the psalm, I'm, I'm trying to remember which one it is. Lord, keep me from sleeping the sleep of death. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's the metaphor of, as it were, apostatizing and going into sleep. That's what happened to Israel. All Israel's journey was that they were slumbering and loving to sleep. Now listen to me very carefully for application. What will put the child of God to sleep is Delilah. This world system. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life will put you to sleep. It'll cause you to lean into her lap and think it's all right to be there and you are in the arms of the enemy. Am I making some sense? Right. There it is. Thank you, sweetie. There, there it is. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Light my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And this is a child of God speaking. Remember, I told you about the Psalms. I'm almost done. We're going to get some Q&A here. This is David speaking. Does it make sense that David would pray this kind of prayer? Somebody help me. Does it make sense that David, in the complexity of who he is, knowing his propensities, knowing his inclination, knowing his weakness, would say, Lord, don't let me go to sleep. Is this not a great prayer for intercession for yourself? Listen carefully to me. Listen carefully, children of God. Going to sleep feels good. Did you hear me? Don't, 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 don't play self-righteousness right now. Don't do it. Because some of you are asleep right now. You're laughing, but you're asleep. You might be waking up, but you're asleep right now. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so can, do you want me to help you right quick before I shut it down? This is how you know you're asleep. When you're asleep, 
is you are not responding positively and actively to the word of God that you know you should be responding to. You're asleep. So don't tell me you're awake. You're not awake. See, do you guys know what happens to the body when you start to drowse off and go to sleep, how that it goes into a kind of paralysis state? Does it? No, of course it does. This is what David was sensing. And, and so what's remarkable about David for you and me, David knows he's a sinner, does he not? In my mother's womb was I conceived in sin. I came forth speaking lies. David knows. He knows his propensity to wander, doesn't he? Uh, what I love about a person that really walks in a healthy um, sort of system and framework and paradigm of sanctification is they know that their own worst enemy is themselves. Right? And, and, and one of the things that you and I want to constantly do is stay awake to that reality. Lord, I'm lethargic. Lord, I'm, 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 I'm paralyzed right now. Lord, I can't move. Because my eyes are open, my heart is awake, but I can't move. That's what the, the, the lady in Song of Solomon says, right? She can't move. Jesus is knocking on the door. She can't get out of the bed. She loves him, but she's paralyzed by sleep. And so the parable of the ten virgins is a, a warning to us, is it not? To keep your lamps lit. And they all went to sleep. Right, and so this is a good application to us because, listen, she stroked that brother. I'm not going to get into the X-rated stuff going on here, but she put that brother to sleep, didn't she? Did she put him to sleep on her lap? This is where John said in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. The world is asleep too. The world and the church is asleep. See? Now, go back to the text, ma'am, so I can finish up. So I want to get some Q&A and then wrap it up. She, uh, she made him sleep in her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave the seven locks of his head. So apparently he had seven long locks. Did that make some sense? Right. And, and other translations, they were like braids because they had, to be, uh, they had to be individuated being so long, right? Cut all seven locks off of his head, and then she began to do what? That brother was asleep. Was that brother asleep? He was so asleep that she could cut his hair and she could afflict him. She was so asleep. He was so asleep that she could cut his hair and she could afflict him. She began to afflict him and his what went away. Right. So if you wanted to in your own time, you could lift up verse 19 and do a much fuller study of the process of how distraction can lead you to sleep cause you to lose your consecration, lose the tassel, lose the tassel. That's why the psalmist said, the, the psalmist said uh, in Psalm 119, when he says, um, um, uh, remember your mercies unto me, O God, even your salvation, according to your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, because I have hoped in your judgments. In other words, you and I know what we don't use, we will what? There's no doubt about it. See, the tassel is about practicing patterns that will keep you constantly reminded by the promises of God. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And you can drift over time into sleep. She made him sleep and she afflicted him and his strength went from him. Boy, that was an event, wasn't it? 
Then look at verse 20. We're going to walk this out just briefly. And she said, the Philistines be upon you, Samson. And he did what? He awoke out of his sleep. And he said, I will go out as other times before and shake myself. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Stay with me. So you'll notice that you have to infer in the text that as long as his locks were kept in their consecrated state, that the Lord was with him. Once his tassels were taken, the Lord has departed. That follows, right? If you seek me, you will find me. If you depart from me, I'll depart from you, right? So this is why Jesus would say to, to you and me, abide in me and, and I in you, right? Because without me, you can do nothing, right? If my word abides in you and you abide in me, then you can do anything that God is calling you to do. So shall you be my disciples. This is John chapter 15, verse 6 and 7. So there is a need to understand that the mechanism of God's word plays a role in building a bridge between us and God. Is that true? Yes, it's the tassel. It's the tassel. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, so have I hoped in your judgments. So now Brother Samson is dealing with a temporary lapse of faith, is he not? Yeah, and yet guess what he's doing? He's rising up in a kind of strength, godless strength, to go to war against his enemies. Will he prevail? He cannot. He cannot prevail because he's not aware that the problem right now is his relationship with God, not his enemies. Now, now this is a believer's condition frequently too. He's not blinded to the reality of who he is. He's not even blinded to the reality of who his enemies are. He's also acting natively to go after them because remember Samson is walking in the submission of a Nazarite vow because his submission is represented by his locks, right? But Samson is also operating because of that submission in the strength of the Lord because he's the savior of Israel. He's the judge, is he not? Is he the judge of Israel? He's the judge. So he has to fight against God's foes because God's foes are the people of God's foes. But he fell into the hands of Delilah, the whorish woman, and now the enemy has him, do, does he, do, he, do they not? And now Samson has to go through another paradigm. I'm going to just clip it off here, no pun intended. I'm going to show you what he's doing. Samson now is taking on the principle that to live is to die. And that's the gospel, right? So remember what, uh, what uh, Samson said back in verse 18. He was grieved unto death. Notice what it says. Go back there. I think it was there. Uh, verse 17 then. Go back. Um, yeah, verse 16. I want you to see the tail end of it. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words, she urged him so that his soul was what? Vexed unto death. Now we know that all the scriptures are ultimately pointing to the one man who in his love for harlot sinners like you and me was vexed unto death. Now we know, don't we? Now we know that the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Do we now know that? Now we know that Samson now must bear the rebellion that he has 
exhibited because he is in love with a whore. Now we see the paradox of Christ and the church. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, I know, I know, I know we want to make, we want to make the church a, a, a beautiful spotless bride, but she's a whore before she's spotless. And Christ has to die for her. And the gospel is that love unto death is the paradigm, right? And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, is around verse 30 or so. He says, except you be ready to lay down your life, you will lose your life. Except you lose your life for my sake, you will not have life. That, that tension is there in that you and I are called to bear our what? Cross. This is a cross theology. It makes sense, doesn't it? This is a cross theology. It makes all kinds of sense in the world. Now, we're not used to it in America because we're, we're so on the surplus side, so on the, on the you know, wealth side and prominence side. But if you think about it, and I, I definitely want to drill into that by Q&A so we can get ready to get started. Please understand that whenever you and I are pursuing Christ, whenever we're pursuing Christ, and that's pursuing the tassels, would you agree with that? All right, because we're going to do some work. I'll, I, I don't have to go back to, um, to, um, to Samson because you guys know the outcome. Samson killed more in his death than he did in his life. You know that already. You know he's a rich picture of Christ taking out the Philistines completely in the midst of their drunken party. Y'all know that, right? He grabs both pillars of the whole temple and brings it down upon his own head, right? And that means and signifies the destruction of the flesh in order that we might be saved. Samson is a beautiful type of Christ. But here, the lesson to you and me is very clear that when we are called by the grace of God into a relationship with Jesus, Except you be willing to lay down your life. That's the nature. Greater love hath no man than this, that he should what? Lay down his life for us. And that's what Samson did for Delilah, didn't he? What Christ did for us. So the idea about the tassel, this is what I want to say. When you and I are pursuing the tassel, this is what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 3. It's around verse 10 and following. He says, I count all things dumb for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So what he does in that Philippian text, chapter three, is he actually embraces the idea that to obtain, you have to lose. That to acquire, you have to diminish. That to reign, you have to suffer. That tension is true in the gospel all the time. This is why with, the, with, with uh, Samson's account, listen, I'm not at all sad about Samson, are you? Oh, do you know Samson is in glory? Did y'all know that? That brother's name is written right along with all the other uh, Jewish leaders in the book of Judges in Hebrews 11, is it not? Moses, right, Samson, Gideon. That means God had fully covered Samson even in this lapse because he was going to use this lapse to teach us that where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. This is why I love Samson. I love me. That brother died for his girl. Died for his girl. God, give me grace. Right? Give me grace to die for you, Lord Jesus, as you died for me. You're not going to get me to put a demerit on Samson. Because that, that brother did. He, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And love did it. All right, listen to what he says. Yea, doubtless I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ my Lord. Is he pursuing the tassel? For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dong that I may what? Yes, is he pursuing the tassel? 
One, a couple more verses. Look at verse 9. Notice what he says. We're going to do 9, maybe through 11. We'll stop. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. What a beautiful thing to live by faith and die in faith and stand before God in Christ on that day, all because we were committed to the tassel. Committed to the tassel. Committed to the tassel. Look at verse 10. Philippians 3.10. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering be made conformable unto his death. Do you see it? I'm pursuing Christ and I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to lose, have loss, even unto death. That's the paradoxical nature of agape love. There it is. Paul didn't have a problem with being in prison. He didn't have a problem with being beat. He didn't have a problem with suffering. He didn't have a problem with losing brethren, even false brethren. Why? Because he considered the gain of Christ worth the loss of everything. Right. So now think about this, child of God. Think about this, because this is really something. You do believe in the promises of God. Do you believe that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Do, do, do you believe that without faith it's impossible to believe, please God? Yes. Do you believe that he that believes on Jesus Christ is already born of God? Yes. That's right. And he that loves Christ also loves those that love Christ. Do you believe that? Yes. And do you believe that as a child of God, the wicked one will never ever touch you to send you to hell? Do you believe that? Yes. Right. Again. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that nothing will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Come high, hail, our, our fires, our storms, our angels, our principalities. Our, do you believe what Paul said in Romans 8, 34? Do you believe it? Then what you believe is that your life can be very difficult down here. Very difficult down here, notwithstanding. Did that make some sense? See, see, if you believe just the few verses I shared, then you believe that your life can down here be very difficult. And yet nothing will separate you from the love of God. That means you will have to learn how to reconcile everything under the auspices of God's faithfulness to keep you and conform you to Jesus, notwithstanding. If you want to be able to have a robust belief in that, you got to keep playing with the tassels. All right, a few questions and we're out of here. Somebody run. A few questions, observations, we'll get out of here. Don't ever forget the tassel. Don't ever forget the tassel. Raise your hand if you want to exercise your senses before we get out of here. Don't ever forget the tassel. Miss Jackie, way over there. All right, we only need one or two. Uh, then, a, then a brother way down there, way down there. She, she, he can, a little man can do both. Meet him down there. Anybody on this side? Because we're going to knock, knock this out in a second. So go ahead on, Jackie, and make sure you keep it to your mouth. Okay. Um, this, I guess this is like an application for me, the woman um, with the issue of blood when she went into the crowd and she pressed her way through. But also she was sinning. And also the application of the people that also was around but didn't touch Christ. So I felt I, my application is that Christ, I mean, as, as in the crowd, I'm a sinner, 
And I have that ability to be blind, angry, and weak. Mm -hmm. But I also have that ability which Christ gives us faith, a measure of faith, to press my way regardless. And even though I'm unclean, I'm pressing through and maybe making other people unclean. <laughs> but when I get to Christ and I touch that tassel, he cleansed me. But I also love the part where she goes to Christ in fear and trembling, almost in a repentive way. Not almost, totally. Yeah, okay, in an, a repentive way, right. saying, you know, Lord, forgive me. I know I did this, but I had to do this That's to right. get to you. That's right. And I also like the, um, the, the leader of the synagogue when he came for his daughter. Because she was blind. She was in that, like you were saying earlier, that sleep state. She was literally dead. Yeah, dead. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. That's a picture, a picture of our spiritual blindness, right. our spiritual death, our spiritual sickness. And Jairus, who is the, the ruler there, uh -huh. she was a co-extension of him. The daughter or the son is a co-extension of ourselves okay. as the relationship between the father and the son. Right. So we're pursuing God for spiritual life represented in the lives of our children. Yeah. So he was as desperate to get to Jesus as his woman was yeah. because his daughter was dead. Yeah. And so it, it um, especially with the woman, because it's more descriptive, that... I should almost always be in that desperate state, seeking God, just um, seeking him out that I'm a sinner and I need that. I need his. That will tassel. only be the case, though, if we go all the way back to the beginning of that uh, example and demonstrate, as I tried to help us, actually take on some empathy around the issue of blood. So think about she's constantly losing blood. She's constantly being weakened. Daily, her condition is so vivid and so real to her, she is in a perpetual state of need. That is not our state. It, 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 it could be and should be, but that's not our state. Often, we are way more healthy and vivified and engaging in the liberty and freedom of our health, and that often is to our demise, is it not? Right. That's what I want to say about that. Even though we think we're healthy and okay, we still need to see. I agree. Okay. I agree. God has to help us with that. Having a true estimation of our constant need and weakness is really the only way that we will apply to Christ legitimately. And that's okay because you know he loves us enough to remind us how weak we are. But he'll, 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 he'll let you bump your head. My brother back there. Hello. Um, you was you was talking about um, um, what was it, the ladies and all that, and you had said something about that earlier. And I was wondering, what, what, you know, like, why are we still doing what we're doing, and Christ still uh, forgive us for what we, you know, we say the wrong thing and then we get in trouble for Santa. Uh, the wrong words, and we get caught up in our, you know, situation like you were saying earlier. And I wasn't 
trying to laugh. It was just something that it was just it was just something that I wanted to hear. Yeah, um, I didn't I didn't I didn't regard you laughing. I didn't even know if you did laugh. Your laughter was before God. Uh, did you have something else to say? Well, I wasn't trying to, you know, make make a make a statement or make okay. you laugh or anything like that. It was just something that just came out, and I just wanted to know why why we have to be that way. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, again, it's a paradox, my dear brother. You you and I are simul. If you're a child of God, if you really want, you are simultaneously righteous and sinful, and life is going to be a struggle. Um, you should long, we should all long to um, be more like Christ and to walk in obedience because that's what you're made for. Be sure of this, that if you are walking in disobedience, you can never be happy. So the, 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 the paradox of being between grace and glory is the paradox of loving and hating what I am. That's Romans 7. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, I find myself doing. I am, in that context, a very wretched man. So I am not saying to the world that I glory in, you know, uh, the behavior that might constitute uh, indiscretion, uh, the behavior that might constitute um, uh, bad conduct in the area of relationships, uh, sex, pornography, um, or any of the debilitating pathologies that govern our lives today. The child of God takes no comfort in living in rebellion against his God. No comfort whatsoever. Um, and when he slips into those behavior patterns, he is operating out of an inferior joy. It's an inferior joy. Did, you, did that make some sense? It's an inferior joy. And, and he will have to reckon with that one way or the other in terms of if he's going to continue living in that inferior joy, he must know that he will die. That's Romans 8, 13, okay? If you live after the flesh, you will die. Samson's life was ended short because he pursued the flesh. Now he went to glory. But that was because of the axiom, if you live after the flesh, you will what? If you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you live after the spirit, through, through the spirit mortifying, subduing, fighting, struggling, uh, subjugating, mitigating the impulses of the flesh, you shall live. And what does that mean? That to live a life of joyful obedience is to live a life of constantly pursuing the tassel because I'm in need of remission of sins. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Right. And, and so um, I, I'll hear the question all the time that you're sharing. And all I say is that um, you want to understand the, the, the mystery of being both righteous and sinful, and you want to deploy to Christ to become uh, much more consistently a man walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. Does that help you, my dear brother? Yeah. Yes, indeed. And that's, and that's why I asked you that, because I know you, you said something that just, that just wasn't right for me to, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't very, 
uh, godlike. It wasn't like it was supposed to be there. It was supposed to be like that. Right. You, you per- that's a perfect way to get it. I, I, that's helpful. But He's just wondering. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Barry, Barry. Hold on. You don't have to do that for him. He's a grown man. I got him. And then if you can want to say something, you can. But he's a grown man. He's very clear, too. You know I've been doing this forever. So I want to help him with that. I appreciate that because what he was saying, and you guys know this, even though there was a kind of laughter that comes out, and these are idiosyncratic expressions from a lot of people. I figured that out here at Grace. I go, why are they always laughing? People do that because they don't know what else to do. But sometimes our laughter is because of the ambiguity of that proposition or that idea. There's an ambiguity there. It was like when Sarah laughed when God said, you're going to have that child. She shouldn't have laughed, but she did. Right. And God knew she wasn't trying to mock him. That's what I was saying to my brother. I, I wouldn't have even regarded it as any kind of offense to me. I understand that idiosyncratic expression. It's like, I don't know what to do. But he actually drew it out of himself, right? He says, something's not quite right about that. And he's right. You and I are not quite right yet. And that's the way you can put it when you are not operating in in the spirit, my dear brother. And people are saying, now, I thought you was a Christian. Just say, I'm not quite right today. I am not quite right today. And that's the most honest answer. That's the most honest answer. Continue on the journey, my dear brother. Continue on the journey. God, he's, he's able to make all grace abound and to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Do we have another question before we shut it down? That's an excellent question. Way over here. All right. Let's see what good question. By the way, what's that brother's name? Hardy. Hardy? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Barry, for bringing him. I have lots of questions, uh-uh. but I'm one, not going to. I understand, girl. but you're, 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 I just wanted to say that your uh, lesson tonight raised a lot of questions. Yeah, bring her, bring her volume down because she sound almost sound like God right now. <laughs> <laughs> bring her voice down. I'm starting to tremble. <laughs> okay, so okay. You mentioned about the hair, and I was reading earlier this week about dreadlocks, and someone was saying in the article that um, these the Nazarites, uh, they gave you the impression they felt that the Nazarites had dreadlocks. No. So I want to know. No. They, um, did, they didn't have dreadlocks. Okay. That's, all, that's, that's the first answer. None of our, our Ganji smoking brothers that are coming up out of, you know, our, our cultures that are used to that modality and expression are representing what it means to be a Nazarite. Okay, that's, that's good to hear. And, it's, and I'm not even speaking against dreadlocks. I'm just simply saying there is no ontological, there is no theological, there is no exegetical correlation between the dreadlocks of our African brothers and, and, and the Jewish mandate for being a Nazarite or, or having locks as did some of the priests. We don't want to conflate that because what goes on in theology today, I'm going to just tell you right now, we love to conflate, you know, uh, indigenous cultural pagan religions with Christianity. We love to do that. Right. All right. One more question. Um, You talked about losing your life to 
save it in carrying your cross. I still struggle with this concept, and I really don't, I don't know if, if it's because of my OCD tendencies, or yeah, I that's need, it. That's exactly what it or is. Or I just need more theological understanding. No, that's your OCD, girl. That's your OCD. <laughs> I'm helping you right now. That's your OCD. We're going to lock it in right in there. No, because you're, you're, you're a smart woman. Don't tell me that you're not. I know you've been around long enough. No, but, I'm but not nope. denying that I'm smart, but you think mm -hmm. I think Listen you... carefully. Listen carefully. Uh, nobody naturally likes dying. No, nobody, unless you're a sociopath and unless you are a, um, unless you are an extremely depressed, narcissistic, um, um, suicidation uh, person, nobody likes dying and no one likes suffering. But guess what? Listen carefully so we don't go around this tree. Everybody's dying. Everybody's dying. No, period. Right. And, 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 and everybody's suffering. Microanalyze that. Everybody's suffering and everybody's dying, right? No, really. Right. And so we can, we can learn how to embrace that paradoxical tension, you know, in small measures until we can take bigger doses, right? Because every day we're making choices that mitigate other choices that we would like to actually have. We, we want both and a lot, but a lot of times it's going to be either or, right? And that, that is a choice that, that, that leads to a kind of death. And, and, and that kind of right choice making is essential to maturity, it's essential to wisdom, it's essential to prosperity. We've got to make right choices and right choices are going to be death sentences to some and life sentences to others, right? That's how you prosper. That's how you grow. That's how you, that's how you mature. So you're actually already going through that. Okay. Okay. Well, I hope you'll do a sermon on that more. Uh, now, she wants me to be preaching on life and death, on dying and mortification. And I think we do that almost every week when we preach the gospel. Um, so one more, one more question and we're done. Thank uh, you. Yeah, very, very good. Um, I don't know if I could ever preach in a way in which maybe that's it. Great. I don't know. You guys can bring the mics up if we don't have any other questions. I don't know if I can ever preach or teach or expound scripture in a way. Raise your hand, girl, if you got a question. Don't be afraid. Um, I don't know if I could ever preach or teach in a way. <laughs> no. In fact, I know I can't. Yeah, like the disciples, you know, they hung with Jesus, didn't they? They did not like his message about him having to die. That, that was hard. Right? Was that hard for those brothers? Yeah. We're not better than him. I am not. I don't think I could ever, I don't think I'd ever could preach a message about dying and we get up and run around the church full of the Holy Ghost. Right? You have to be counterintuitive. So to be counterintuitive in that regard is that you and I, and, and no, and I'm going to state it this way. Anytime that we come under reproof and correction of God's word, we're dying. 
whenever the word of God is correcting us, and you guys have been with me a long time, we are apprehended by the spirit of discipline and we're dying. That, that's what happens. Is that not right? And we still, we survive it because of the hope of the gospel that brings us up out of that period of discipline because that's the fruit of it, right? No chastening seems to be pleasant for the moment, but afterwards it brings forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness to everyone that's exercised their body. Oh, you go through trials. Raise your hand if you go through trials. You're dying. Am I making some sense? And you notice how we'll go through a trial and then we'll come out of that trial and we're glad that we came out of that trial and temporarily we are better for that trial. Right. We're progressing towards this is this is um, teleologically when I say progressing, we are moving towards the consummation of our salvation. And that is the process. So you and I are already in that dynamic. We're already in that dynamic. We have highs and lows, don't we? We have dark days and light days, don't we? We have depression and exaltation. We have anxiety and we have moments of levity, don't we? We joy and rejoice uh, full of glory. And at other times we are absolutely just devastated by anguish and, and pain and sorrow. We, we, we deal with those extremes across the totality of that spectrum all the time. And that is um, suffering unto death and glory. That is, that's the dynamic. That's the dynamic. So my sister, we'll close here. Yeah. So you kind of just answered a little bit what I was going to go into, but I just kind of gleaned for quickly, a quick moment that thank you, Jesus in the trials, because it's a call to die and grow in him. Yes. So the muscle, the tassel that we can glean from that is when that's happening, we're, we're growing in the spirit. Amen. So, so there's that. So back to the woman who... So that's counterintuitive thinking. You guys do know that, right? You do know the way she processed that experience. She's denying, she's disregarding how she feels. Yep. Right? We're disregarding. When we talk like that, I'm going through something. Thank you, Jesus, because I know the outcome is that it's going to make me better. We're totally disregarding how we feel. That's what it means to walk by faith. That's the faith muscle. Yes, ma'am. And so if we can just let go of the woe is me type thing and lean into, ah, he's, he's calling me. Yes. I'm, I'm having an opportunity to grow. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. And just, you know, hover in that. And, Pray and, for me because I would love to have, be sanctified to that degree. Right? I'd love to be sanctified. I'd like to, oh, I'm suffering. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Pray for me. I would love that. I mean, I, I got it conceptually. I mean, the apostles, Acts chapter 4, they jump for joy, running all through the city, forgetting me for Jesus. I need the Holy Ghost real bad. Real bad. Amen. Feel me, Lord. Feel well, me. It's one thing to see it, and it's another thing to, to live in it. Okay, so back to the gal that, um, that touches the hem, right? I feel like when, so there's not a lot of miracles happening in America. Because we got health insurance and we have hospitals and we have synthetic interventions, right? We've got food stamps. Like people, there's. Yeah, you, you went know. back to food stamps. Right. Well, I mean, you're talking about when I grew up. Well, I'm saying that there's <gasps> nobody's 
starving that they have to have that faith where they want to touch that garment where they're willing to believe in a miracle. Um, so when these miracles are happening like in other nations because they're, totally. they're, they're, they totally. only have a miracle. Totally. That's the only way out is I a agree. miracle. I agree. So um, to die in, um, to, you know, pride and all the, you know, um, cushy things that we have so that we can be host more miracles and be part of more miracles that God really like on earth as it is in heaven I guess what my question is is I believe that we should really try and um, let go of all of the wanting and surrender to all of the hope and faith type thing. So, like, instead of trying to, like, um, works and um, I, I guess my question is. Can is, I reframe it for you? Cause yes. Because you're getting into the weeds. I, I think I get you. Yeah. And we're going to close with this one. Because there's a way to 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 negotiate the things that we have and, and actually miss the beauty of the tension of them. So God giving us things is just who he is. That's what he does. He gives us things. And he's given us all things what? Richly to enjoy. Is that true? All right, so I don't want to take away that promise because there's some wisdom in that. Like God is not giving you all things richly to enjoy in order that you reject those things that he's given to you to richly enjoy. So we, what we have to do is formulate attention here because if we don't formulate attention, we're going to create a system of works and that works is going to be in the area of denying things. Did that make some sense, you guys? Right, so I, I want to help you with that. I, I want to help us with the tension of being able to embrace what God gives us while at the same time also embracing what he doesn't give us and learn how to negotiate the positive-negative realities of life as a kind of self-equilibrium walk with God because the reality is, as I was stating earlier, there are a lot of things that he does not give us. And if we are aware of that, we can be thankful for that. There are a lot of things he gives us that we can embrace and receive if we do it with the missional objective of them things, of those things strengthening us for his glory and for us to share with others. And what that would also mean is that when he gives us, giving away things is a fundamental part of dying as well, if that makes some sense. Right. And so learn how to give as he gives to you. And that will be also a proxies of suffering. That makes sense. Right. Because, yeah, I'm trying to help us get this uh, across the table because it's not just about trying to say no to every good thing that God gives us because you're not going to do it. 
When you set yourself up for that, you're just going to become a hypocrite. You're going to be telling folks, yeah, I'm denying myself over here and over there. I'm, yeah, man, I'm, I'm walking in denial. You're going to fall flat on your face. You know you're going to fall flat on your Just quit. Um, but learning how to be responsible with God's blessings will allow you to voluntarily suffer in giving away things because you are creating the equilibrium of who you are in Christ and what you have at that rich spiritual level. And, and, and godliness with contentment will produce that, that kind of great gain that says, I can give because I've been given unto. That's the balanced life that God would have you and I to have. Does that make some sense? You have to know this because the, the nature of the gospel is God pouring into us. Did that make sense? Right. It's him pouring into us. That's the work of the third person, to pour into us. So he doesn't want us empty. He wants us full to give. To give. And, and, and that, that giving will require a kind of counterintuitive letting go of things that we know can actually be toxic. They can be addictive. They can be distracting. They can be bondages because we're being excessive with them. That makes sense, right? That makes sense. So, um, yeah, it's managing God's grace is what he's called us to do. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the saints. Thank you for their patience. May this study cause us to be compelled to constantly pursue the tassel and help others to do the same. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.